I'm Pat, your virtual host, and this is Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Today's episode is brought to you by Mutant Media Group, author Gary Lockman and Spoken to Media. Today is Monday, February 12th, 2024. Today's episode is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Dreaming Ahead of Time. This book is a personal exploration of precognition, synchronicity, and coincidence. Lockman's description and analysis of his own experience introduces readers to the uncanny power of our dreaming minds and reveals the illusion of our careful distinctions between past, present, and future. Chapter 1. I had a dream last night. The dreams, synchronicities, and odd coincidences discussed in this chapter come from journals I've been keeping since the 1980s. Some periods are better represented than others, and, at different times, my dream life seems simply to have stopped. Or, at least I've gone through long patches, sometimes months, when, try as I may, I do not remember my dreams. This is often compensated for by stretches when my dreams are so long and complicated, so odd and unusual, that it takes some time to record them. Some of the dreams here come from a period like this, when my dream life was so complex and involved that I had to stop paying attention to it, simply so that I'd have time in the morning for something other than recording my dreams. These dreams involved strange adventures, magical battles, more than once I've fended off Satanists and witches, visits from aliens, incredible journeys, and meetings with remarkable men that would leave me half-exhausted and utterly convinced that in my dreams I had actually taken part in these events. I had the feeling that these dreams took place not solely in my head, but were in some way real, in more than a psychological sense. I felt that in them I had visited some interior terrain, different from the more common every-night dreams that have me worried about some trivial problem, undressed in public, or anxiously missing a train. If dreams serve a compensatory function, as C.D. Jung, one of the great dreamers and dream interpreters of the last century, believed they did, evening out imbalances in our waking mind, then I can only assume that at this time of my life, I must have been rather bored and frustrated. And, having read some of the journal entries that accompanied the records of my dreams at this time, leading up to when I left Los Angeles at the end of 1995 and moved to London to start a new life as a full-time writer, I have to say, it appears I was. That I still have dreams, whether I remember them or not, that we all do, seems to have been confirmed by science. According to several studies, we dream throughout the night. Although many people claim that they don't dream, this is untrue. They may not remember their dreams. Not everyone has the same power of dream recall, although it can be developed with practice, but they have them nevertheless. Dreaming is something we do and we continue to do it throughout the sleeping hours of our life, in the same way that we continue to breathe and our hearts continue to beat. And, if some investigators into the dark side of the mind are correct, we also dream throughout the day. Along with the daydreams with which we are familiar, it seems that those we associate with the night 
are still at work as we go about our daily business. With this in mind, the idea that our whole life is a dream, that the world we wake up to from sleep is as much a dream as the ones we have left behind, and which informs spiritual teachings and practices such as Tibetan Buddhism and the Fourth Way of Gurdjieff and Uspinsky, takes on a new and significant meaning. King Kong and UFOs I know I dreamed a great deal as a child, but unlike some dreamers, again, Jung is a good example, I cannot today recall dreams from my childhood. The earliest dreams I can recall are from my late teens, when I was first living in New York. Introduction of Hypnagogia and Hedgehogs A Talk at Brompton Cemetery Liminal Sleep Prediction Prophecy Premonition Precognition I dream the future, and so do you. Dunn, Priestley, Lethbridge. A tweet about time. The idea for writing this book came from a talk I gave in Brompton Cemetery in London in the spring of 2019. The talk, given as part of a series of events entitled On the Borderlands of Sleep, was on hypnagogia and precognitive dreams. I've written about hypnagogia and hypnagogic hallucinations in some of my other books. Readers familiar with those will, I trust, pardon some repetition here. The hypnagogic state is the curious liminal condition each of us enters at least twice a day, when falling asleep and when waking up. There is some debate about the differences between these two transitional states, but this really shouldn't concern us. The hypnagogic state is a half-dream state, as the esoteric philosopher P.D. Ospinsky called it. It's midway between our usual waking state and unconsciousness. Most of us pass through this midway point without recognizing it, but with practice, we can learn how to remain in it, hovering, as it were, between full wakefulness and sleep. While on this threshold, we can have some unusual experiences. We can watch dreams form and see them with a startling vividness while yet still being awake and aware of our surroundings. We are in two states of consciousness at the same time, simultaneously conscious and unconscious, or at least conscious enough to be critically aware of the symbols and images we associate with dreams and that we believe have their source in the unconscious mind. One of the characteristics of this unusual state is that it is auto-symbolic, as the early Freudian Herbert Silberer discovered. That is, the images, symbols, and voices one hears in this condition are, or can be, symbolic of one's physical, emotional, and mental state at the time. Let me point out that I am aware of the paradox of being consciously unconscious and of the difficulties involved in talking about the unconscious as if it were a concrete thing, a part of us, in the same way that our arms or legs are. But I should warn readers that if paradoxes put you off, you may well want to find another book. As we go along, we will run into more than a few of them here. Hypnagogia 
is the name coined by the psychologist and philosopher Andreas Mavromatis, who wrote an exhaustive book on the subject, where the visions, images, symbols, and auditory hallucinations that accompany this curious state. It's also a state linked to a variety of paranormal or psychic phenomena, one of which is precognition. Hypnagogic visions are also related to various esoteric ideas about consciousness. Not a few of the figures in the history of esotericism and the exploration of inner states that I have written about, such as C.G. Jung and Swedenborg, were well-practiced hypnagogists. Precognition The simplest definition of precognition Chapter 1. I had a dream last night. The dreams, synchronicities, and odd coincidences discussed in this chapter come from journals I've been keeping since the 1980s. Some periods are better represented than others, and, at different times, my dream life seems simply to have stopped. Or at least I've gone through long patches, sometimes months, when, try as I may, I do not remember my dreams. This is often compensated for by stretches when my dreams are so long and complicated, so odd and unusual, that it takes some time to record them. Some of the dreams here come from a period like this, when my dream life was so complex and involved that I had to stop paying attention to it, simply so that I'd have time in the morning for something other than recording my dreams. These dreams involved strange adventures, magical battles, more than once I've fended off Satanists and witches, visits from aliens, incredible journeys, and meetings with remarkable men that would leave me half-exhausted and utterly convinced that in my dreams I had actually taken part in these events. I had the feeling that these dreams took place not solely in my head, but were in some way real, in more than a psychological sense. I felt that in them I had visited some interior terrain, different from the more common every-night dreams that have me worried about some trivial problem, undressed in public, or anxiously missing a train. If dreams serve a compensatory function, as C.D. Jung, one of the great dreamers and dream interpreters of the last century, believed they did, evening out imbalances in our waking mind, then I can only assume that at this time of my life, I must have been rather bored and frustrated. And, having read some of the journal entries that accompanied the records of my dreams at this time, leading up to when I left Los Angeles at the end of 1995, and moved to London to start a new life as a full-time writer, I have to say, it appears I was. That I still have dreams, whether I remember them or not, that we all do, seems to have been confirmed by science. According to several studies, we dream throughout the night, although many people claim that they don't dream, this is untrue. They may not remember their dreams. Not everyone has the same power of dream recall, although it can be developed with practice but they have them nevertheless. Dreaming is something we do and we continue to do it throughout the sleeping hours of our life, in the same way that we continue to breathe and our hearts continue to beat. And, if some investigators into the dark side of the mind are correct, we also dream throughout the day. Along with the daydreams with which we are familiar, 
It seems that those we associate with the night are still at work as we go about our daily business. With this in mind, the idea that our whole life is a dream, that the world we wake up to from sleep is as much a dream as the ones we have left behind, and which informs spiritual teachings and practices such as Tibetan Buddhism and the Fourth Way of Gurdjieff and Uspinsky, takes on a new and significant meaning. King Kong and UFOs I know I dreamed a great deal as a child, but unlike some dreamers, again, Jung is a good example, I cannot today recall dreams from my childhood. The earliest dreams I can recall are from my late teens, when I was first living in New York. Chapter 2. The Nightly Sea Journey Human beings have been interested in dreams for as far back as records go. As the earliest written accounts of human life show, we've wanted to know what dreams are, what they mean, where they come from, and what we are to make of them ever since our first attempts at fixing our thoughts in some external form. No sooner had people discovered the art of literacy, the Jungian psychologist Anthony Stevens writes, than they began to record dreams. Some of the earliest accounts of dreams date from before 3000 BC and were found in the library of the Babylonian king Ashurbanipal, who reigned from 669 to 626 BC. That a king believed that records of dreams going back some 2,500 years before his time were worth preserving suggests how important dreams were for the ancients. Among the other archaeological treasure discovered when Ashurbanipal's palace was excavated in the mid-19th century were the tablets recounting the Epic of Gilgamesh, generally regarded as the earliest surviving work of great literature. That dreams and poetry were discovered in the same archaeological dig itself seems an example of the strange correspondences that are so much a part of our dreams. Not only does Gilgamesh contain the first record of a dream interpretation, when Ninsun, Gilgamesh's mother, tells him that his bad dreams herald the arrival of Enkidu, more than one dream explorer has noted the literary character of dreams. Dreams tell a story. They introduce dramatis personae and use metaphor and analogy. More than one literary genius has been fascinated with and given us fascinating accounts of their own dreams, from Thomas de Kinsey to the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, while more than one writer or poet has revealed how dreams have inspired their work. Robert Louis Stevenson's account of how the inspiration for the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came to him in a dream is a classic example of this, as is Coleridge's account of writing Kubla Khan. An archaeological excavation, a descent into our past, seems an apt start to the history of dreams, as in dreams themselves, we seem to return to an earlier state of consciousness, one in which metaphor, symbol, and image are the dominant means of communication, and not the linear, sequential mode of rational, logical thought, which, in evolutionary terms, is a very recent development. As Arthur Kessler, no stranger to coincidence and synchronicities, points out, and as other dream explorers have echoed, 
there is a distinct similarity between creative states of mind and those that we associate with dreaming. Each night, when we undergo what Jung called the night sea journey, we enter our creative depths. Reculez pour mieux sauter. In the decisive phase of the creative process, Kessler writes, the rational controls are relaxed, and the creative person's mind seems to regress from disciplined thinking to less specialized, more fluid ways of mentation. Kessler continues, a frequent form of this is the retreat from articulate verbal thinking to vague visual imagery. Even as rational a dream investigator, chapter three, it's about time. When we move from dreams to time, leaving one mystery for another, we enter an area of human experience that invariably slips away from us, no matter how firmly we try to grasp it. In fact, the harder we try to hold on to it, the further it recedes from us until we are left befuddled by our attempt. Then, as is usually the case, we shrug our shoulders and forget about it. The inability to do this is the sure sign that you are a philosopher. At least we are sure that dreams exist. Except for a positivist philosopher I read years ago, and whose name escapes me now, who argued that we have no actual evidence of dreams, only of our waking up, believing we have had them, no one, I think, denies that we dream. Our dreams may be meaningless mental rubbish, cleared out to make space for what we'll pick up the next day, and all arguments to the contrary muddled. But at least we know when we've had one. Time is a different story. With its other fundamental given, space, time seems to be one of those elements of our experience that is so palpably there that to deny it or question it in any way strikes us as absurd. In fact, as the philosopher Immanuel Kant pointed out, without time and space, we would not have any experience at all, given that they are, for Kant at least, the inescapable conditions through which we experience anything. It is easy to see what Kant means, whether we are Kantians or not. If we try to think of some kind of existence without time or space, we draw a blank. The mind boggles at the attempt, so we give it up and get back to serious business. So, like death and taxes, time is something we can't avoid. Yet, when we try to grab hold of it, it slips through our metaphorical fingers like the sand in an hourglass. That sand may tell the time for us, it is of no help in telling us what time is in itself, what the something is that it, the hourglass, is measuring, and neither are the clocks which have taken over from the hourglass. Time, then, is fleeting in two senses. It waits for no man and flies, whether we're having fun or not, and it seems not to comply with our attempts to understand it, dissolving like fairy gold when we try to lay hold of it. Yet, when we look at the clock and see that we have spent quite a bit of time pondering on the nature of time, only to have it disappear under our mental gaze, we are once again faced with its stubborn persistence. Like a dream that dissolves upon awakening, yet which affects our moods throughout the day, when we look for it, 
Time is nowhere to be found. Yet when we look away, it is right there in front of us. Time and the Philosophers We may feel that, not being philosophers, the fact that we can't lay hold of time should not trouble us. Yet philosophers are just as baffled as we are. According to one authority, philosophers that have grappled with the problem of time had ended up in perplexity. One could say that for every philosopher who denies the reality of time, and there have been many, there is one who affirms it just as insistently. We can even place the start of the debate in the earliest years of philosophy among the pre-Socratics, with Parmenides arguing that change and hence time. Chapter 4. Looking Ahead On the face of it, precognition should be impossible. It simply shouldn't happen. We could account for telepathy, clairvoyance, even psychokinesis, the ability to move objects simply by the mind, and other paranormal phenomena in terms of some kind of mental force that science hasn't yet discovered. Some kind of mind ray could transmit thoughts from one mind to another, in the way that radio waves transmit information from a sender to a receiver. In fact, years ago, the novelist Upton Sinclair wrote an account of his experiments with telepathy entitled Mental Radio. Einstein wrote a preface to it. Something along the same lines could explain remote viewing and even psychokinesis with thought energy of some sort applying pressure to physical objects. Attempts to account for paranormal phenomena in this way have so far failed, not because of some conceptual impossibility, but because to have knowledge of some event that hasn't happened yet seems to contradict everything we know or think we know about reality. Even the idea of investigating the past through what is known as psychometry, the ability to gather information about the history of some object simply by holding it, which strikes us as incredible, does not transgress against logic in the way that precognition does. Unlike the future, the past has happened, and just as we have a variety of ways of capturing the moment through photographs or recordings, it could be discovered that objects too in some way carry a record of their past. The mathematician E.T. Bell wrote science fiction stories under the name John Tain. In Before the Dawn, a character invents a light decoder, a device for analyzing the different photographs that have accumulated as double exposures made by sunlight falling on the surfaces of different objects. The principle is the same as ordinary photography, so conceivably such a device could be invented. But no device can analyze photographs that have yet to be taken. In our world of the Internet, artificial intelligence, quantum physics, and science fiction films that have accustomed us to concepts like parallel worlds, alternate realities, and time travel, it is easy to lose sight of just how odd precognition is. But if we have become inured to it, that is a reflection on the dubious human ability to get used to practically anything not on precognition. That it should happen should stop us in our tracks. And if we are lucky, it does. As Colin Wilson writes, 
If we are willing to admit that on one single occasion, Dunn actually dreamed of something that had not yet taken place, then we have admitted the possibility that the common-sense view of time is as crude and simplistic as the flat-earth theory. That many of us do not recognize the problems in our view of time, or, if we do shrug them off as unimportant, suggests that, Columbus or not, many of us still live on a flat earth. Materialism Overturned But not everyone. Others who have researched and experienced precognition have been truly stunned by its implications. Louisa Rhine, wife and colleague of J.B. Rhine, who put parapsychology on the academic map at his parapsychology laboratory at Duke University, North Carolina in the 1930s. What a coincidence. If precognition presents us with a particular bundle of problems, coincidence and its peculiarly meaningful form known as synchronicity has difficulties all its own. It is interesting to compare the two. Though different, they are often associated, for understandable reasons. While on the whole, precognition is considered, frankly, impossible, we've seen that it can be tested for by parapsychologists, and that the results of these tests show strong evidence for its reality, statistically at least. Coincidences, on the other hand, are accepted as real. No one doubts their existence. But we cannot test for coincidence. At least, I can't think of a way in which we could. Coincidences happen. As far as we can tell, we don't make them happen. Coincidences are, as my Oxford Dictionary tells me, a remarkable concurrence of events, brought about apparently by chance. Precognition, on the other hand, does appear to be something we do, even if we aren't aware of doing it and parapsychologists can devise experiments to point this out. So, in the 1970s, the German physicist Helmut Schmidt devised experiments to test if volunteers could predict random subatomic events. Over a series of some 60,000 trials, he arrived at positive results that were a billion to one against chance. Against chance means that the results were better than could be expected if arrived at randomly, that is, by coincidence. So the tests were actually a means of sequestering coincidence, limiting its importance as a causal factor. This is true of practically all parapsychological experiments. They aim to show whether some agency other than chance was at work in producing the results. If a scientist intent on dismissing precognition wanted to, he or she could say that what Schmidt's results showed was a strange ability in his volunteers to create coincidences, to make them happen. In this case, it would be a coincidence between the guesses of his volunteers and the actual random subatomic events. So it could be said that what Schmidt and other parapsychologists had statistical evidence for wasn't precognition or other paranormal powers, but a peculiar and hitherto unknown ability in some humans to produce coincidences, which, on the face of it, seems rather odd. I would say that an ability to produce coincidences does not seem that distant from what we call magic. And, although scientists 
like Dean Radin, want to convince us that real magic exists. Most scientists, I think, would find evidence of a human ability to produce coincidences as bad as, if not worse, than evidence for precognition. And when we introduce the element of meaning, which turns a coincidence into a synchronicity, and which is as unpredictable an experimental factor as you could get, the difficulties of devising tests for this seem insurmountable. Just a coincidence? But what exactly is a coincidence? It's not simply that things coincide, that is, that they happen at the same time. Right now I'm at my desk working on this chapter. As I do, many other things are happening. I can hear birds outside my window and a bus rolling by. If I turn my head, I can see people walking past, as well as my neighbor's cat. And chapter 6. A Telescope into the Past In 1901, Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain, two principals of St. Hugh's College, Oxford, decided to take a trip to Versailles. While there, they got a bit more than what they could expect from their itinerary. While walking in the Trianon Park, they felt a curious depression and a dreamlike sensation for which they couldn't account. What they saw was even more odd. Several people in 18th-century dress walked past them. They asked two gardeners, similarly attired, for directions. A man who hurried by them advised against taking a certain path. A woman clothed in an old-fashioned dress sat drawing. The two ladies admired some woods and passed by a rustic bridge that crossed over a ravine with a picturesque waterfall. A man sitting on a garden kiosk greeted them, and they saw a footman in livery emerge from a door in the palace. In the Petit Trianon, they had watched a wedding party for a time, then left to have tea at their hotel. It was only after Miss Moberly had written about their visit in a letter that the two compared notes of that afternoon. Miss Jourdain had written her own detailed account, and after reading it, the two decided that something odd had indeed occurred. Neither of them had any particular interest in French history, nor in the occult, but the conclusion they came to included both. It seemed that what had happened was that the two of them had somehow been transported back to the Versailles of 1789, just before the French Revolution. Subsequent research suggested that one of the figures they saw, the lady in a light summer dress drawing, could very well have been Marie Antoinette. On different occasions, the two returned to Versailles. Once on a visit by herself, Miss Jourdain experienced the odd feeling both had had on their first visit. Two laborers in bright tunics and hoods were loading a cart. Jourdain saw them, but when she looked away for a second and then turned back, they had vanished, although she was surrounded by open space and there was nowhere for them to hide. She also said she heard voices and a rustling of dresses, but there was no one to be seen. In 1904, three years after their initial visit, the ladies returned to Versailles and were stunned to find everything different. The woods, the bridge, the ravine, the waterfall, the kiosk were gone. They also discovered that the door to the palace from which they had seen the footmen emerge had not been in use for nearly a century. A staircase that led to it had been destroyed some time ago. After this, they were convinced that something very strange had happened that afternoon 
three years earlier. They began to research the period. It was this study that led them to their conclusion that they had visited Versailles, but the Versailles just before the execution of Louis XVI and his queen. They had experienced a time slip. But instead of jumping ahead into the future, as Dunn did in his dreams, they had slipped into the past. Just a garden party? In 1911, Moberly and Jourdain published their account of their experience, calling it an adventure. Soon after the publication, three people who for several years lived in a house overlooking the Trianon told them that they saw the same sort of thing so often that they had become used to it. They ignored it, preferring to live in their own century and not in any other. Some years later, Philippe Julian, an art historian... Thank you for listening to Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? This episode has been brought to you by Newton Media Group. Check us out at newtonmg.com.